For much of the summer, we have been doing a series on Acts and a series on um, the actual title of the book is the Acts of the Apostles, although some people talk about how it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit because obviously it's the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church and in the lives of the disciples. And so what I would like to do today is... um, to summarize that very briefly, and then there are several points that I would like to make in regard to just sort of where we are, I think, and some things that I think would just be good reminders for us. This is not new news. This is not, you know, something that's riveting that you're just going to go, oh my goodness, um, that, you know, will change my life forever. But but what we have to remember is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when that was given, and the, and the Spirit's work in our lives is life-changing and does give us the things we need, gives us the power we need for life today. Uh, the book of Acts opens with um, a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus where he is with the disciples and they're asking him questions. And a very famous passage in Acts 1.8 talks about... Um, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he goes on to talk to them about different things, and he's talking about things, and he says, remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Remain in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Now, they had seen the resurrected Christ. They had seen him. They had seen all the miracles. They had been with him for three years. They knew all that stuff. But he said, stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. So we have to take that as an important point. We have to take that as a point of... Okay, that's obviously important. Jesus was with them for 40 days and then ascended into heaven, and then they were 10 days before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Just a reminder of kind of how the disciples were doing. Um, Initially, right after the resurrection, it was not so good. I mean, they were scared, they were afraid. It talked about that they were meeting behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And then Jesus walks through the wall, which, you know, kind of takes care of the lock thing. Um, You know, and he talks to them and he says peace. He speaks peace to them. And and so there's all this time. There's the time where Peter was reinstated on that famous passage where he's on the beach. They're on the beach and uh, Peter had gone fishing. And with the other disciples, they had caught nothing all night, which I'm sure they were pretty excited about. And uh, because fishing's so exciting anyway, sorry, I just, you know. Anyway, so, and someone calls from the shore and says, do you have any fish? And they were kind of like, duh, no, we don't have any fish. And he tells them to cast the net, and they haul in 153 fish. Um, And at that point, someone, you know, the light bulb turned on and they said, it's the Lord, Um, which was a great, you know, you would think as soon as they were casting the net and the fish started jumping in and all that kind of stuff. Um, I confess to you, I've never caught 153 fish. Um, I confess to you, maybe, well, I've caught one or two. We're not talking about when they die in the tank, you know, you know, at home. When your, your kid brings home the sack of goldfish, you know, at the fair that they won, and you're just going, great, oh, great. You know, and then trying to explain where the fish go when they get raptured and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, so, you know, you're trying to prevent trauma, right? You know, so anyway, and sushi was not an option then. Okay, so let's talk about, let's talk about just, in Acts, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Peter, the guy that, what, 53 days before, had said, I don't know him. 
is the one that stood up really before the, the same crowd in the temple and proclaimed the risen Christ. It talks about how Peter, filled with the Spirit, began to, I mean, just an amazing sermon. He didn't pull out his sermon notes. He didn't go online, you know, to find the good sermon for a day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit pours it out, you know. I mean, God filled them incredibly with his power, and Peter began to preach. And it talks about how, I mean, he just kind of lets it rip. It wasn't, you know, carefully worded or whatever. He just told them basically what had happened. He told them that they had crucified Jesus, and he talked about repent and save yourself from this evil generation. And it says, the scripture says that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. So really pretty incredible. The next few chapters, it, it talks about just life sort of in Jerusalem and, and how, how they shared things and how they met together to pray and they met together for the apostles' teaching. Uh, remarkable healing uh, with the man being lame um, as a result of Peter and John praying for him as he laid on the street. Uh, how they shared things with each other and all that kind of thing. Uh, the authorities didn't really care about that. Didn't, they weren't real happy about that. In the temple, there was a time where the temple guards came and arrested them. Peter and John were detained at one time. The, the 12 apostles were detained at one time. I bet that was a real party. And they were put in jail. And then, oh, they got let out, you know, because an angel came and let them go. And uh, the next morning, when they're going to bring them to court or whatever they did in the temple that day, in those days, uh, some guards came and said, uh, the guys that we put in jail are, you know, in the temple court, you know, preaching again. So obviously that was kind of a problem. It's kind of like when Lazarus was raised from the dead, you know, in John 12, John 11, John 12. And then after he's resurrected from the dead, then the, the religious leaders were saying, well, we'll take care of him. We'll just kill him. Well, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Duh. You know, so you're going to take care of the problem of the resurrection by killing him again? Uh, some people kind of don't get it, and they would be some of them who did not at that time. Um, so tremendous moving of the Spirit among them. They grew such in numbers that they needed to uh, choose seven people who would help serve all of the community, and they did that. And that's where we are first introduced to Stephen, um, and also Philip was one of them. Uh, at one point, uh, Stephen is arrested and becomes the first martyr. Stephen, uh, even in telling this amazing story of basically from Old Testament to their time and what happened with the resurrection, um, he became the first martyr. They were not happy campers with that, and he, um, he was stoned to death. In, as the stones were flying, as he was dying, he was praying forgiveness over those who were killing him. And so with the first uh, perse persecution in the sense of Stephen being a martyr. Uh, they, it talks about how there was a scattering. They had been in Jerusalem, but, but out of fear for what was going on. And also, it was part of fulfilling of what Jesus had asked them to do. The apostles remained in Jerusalem, but others went out into different areas. And so you continue to see um, different people in ministry. Philip, we are, uh, there's a a fair amount of passage talking about Philip and how he um, was ministering in places and the Lord was moving and then he felt like he was he was led to go to a certain place and so he did and that's where he ran into the Ethiopian eunuch who did not understand the passage from Isaiah and Philip explains it then it talks about how in that passage how he was translated that doesn't mean he learned English from German or whatever it means he was moved to another place I kind of pray for that on Central Expressway you know have y'all ever prayed to be translated come on 
come on, I'm kidding, don't, you don't have to do that. But there are times you're just like going, God, if I could get out of this traffic, I would love it. So far, that has not happened uh, to me. After the persecution, Saul and others um, began persecuting the church, and we know the famous story of Saul's conversion. Uh, anyone that talks about they, that God is not specific and he does not know specific people and he does not know specific situations haven't read that text because when the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go talk to this guy and I want you to, he tells him what street he's on, he tells him what house he's in, he tells him the name of the guy that owns the house, pretty specific. Um, so really amazing as far as uh, how everything is shared at that point and how things are moving there. Saul's conversion when uh, the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? And, and three days later, as Ananias was obedient and went and prayed for him to receive his sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, many conversations have, been, uh, have occurred in result to what if Ananias didn't go? I mean, I really think God would have raised up someone else. But, you know, you think about the people that are kind of the behind-the-scenes people that minister to the people that, that will take a major lead. Paul obviously um, traveled in four different missionary trips and wrote a great deal of the New Testament. So amazing in his uh, ministry, in his work. After Saul's con uh, conversion, um, the, the church continued to grow in many different places. And there was conflict. I mean, it was much like church today. Good things, difficult things. I mean, it was just regular life. Times when people didn't agree, times when people did. Um, but still a real outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit was poured out upon Gentiles as well as Jew. Uh, it was the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all people and, and all time. It is not something that just ended with the apostolic age. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, it wasn't just to the 12, it was to the 120, and then expanded thereon. So it's very clear throughout Scripture. We then have the missionary journeys, and, um, and Paul eventually was imprisoned. Uh, the... Uh, James the Apostle was also killed, uh, so different ones were being killed at different times. In reality, all of the disciples, with the exception of John, all of the apostles were martyrs at different times in different places because of the gospel. And yet, the word of God went forth, and people's lives were changed, and they really truly reached their entire generation. They reached the known world at that point in time. Paul um, had four missionary journeys, and, and, and he, at times he would be in prison, and, and the doors would be open, and they would be let out. At times he stayed in prison, and even when the doors were opened, and one time they stayed and led the Philippian uh, jailer and his entire family to the Lord. So a, a true outpouring of how God moves. Sometimes we have open doors, sometimes we have closed doors. God is still moving. Paul eventually was uh, martyred as well as he appealed to Rome and uh, had to go before trial. He did speak before kings, and, but was eventually beheaded in Rome. When the book of Acts ends, it, it's almost like, okay, so what's the next chapter? Well, history is the next chapter. And in a sense, we are many chapters down the road. So we need to see our part in all of this, and we need to see where we fit in to the church overall. Uh, the, the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, was the fulfillment of the spring feasts and festivals of the Jewish calendar or the Jewish people. There are some feasts and festivals who have not yet been fulfilled, and those happen in the fall of the year. 
And many people feel like we are in the time, like the summertime of harvest, as they were in an agricultural society, and and as they very much saw that as a part of sort of their season of harvest and what was given and and how to to kind of stage their year. We are in, in this time, in 2015, we're still in the time of harvest. I believe the day will come when the harvest will end, when the Lord will return. We do not know what, when that will be, although there are certainly people that think they do and try to sell a lot of books on that. Jesus says only the Father knows, and so we kind of have to look to that. Several things in reflecting over the book of Acts. Um, it talks several times about how those that loved the Lord had a sense of awe that there were so many things happening and so many things going on, and God, there were so many miracles, people being healed, and all of that really miraculous things, and yet people were also being martyred. I mean, it wasn't just like, isn't this story wonderful? I mean, God was moving, but people were also losing their life. Scripture says they had a sense of awe of the presence of God. And in reading that, I really had to think back about when was the last time I really had a sense of awe about the presence of God. And I'd love to say it was yesterday. You know, and I don't know how you'd answer that question, but it was one for me of real reflection of just marveling at what God has done and not taking lightly when he moves in our midst. In the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, which could be sharing meals, but could also be communion like we do. They devoted themselves to prayer, and they gathered together. And I think those very much are things that we need to consider um, in our church, in our day. And there are things we do, but I think we have to be intentional about it. I want to talk about prayer, and I know you guys find that amazing that I'm going to talk about that, because I never do. Um, but I think it is so critical, and I think we don't get it. And I, and I think we don't quite understand, and I don't mean that like y'all, I mean that like me. You know, I don't think I quite grasp the significance of prayer and how important it is. Um, the story is told of Christ for the Nations is a Bible school in Oak Cliff that has literally sent students all around the world. And years and years ago, they were wanting to start a Bible school in Germany. And they had tried and tried. And I don't know if you've ever tried to purchase land or a building in a different country. Um, I think it's pretty challenging. And they had tried to go over and do that kind of thing. And they, they just kept hitting roadblocks. And they weren't sure how it would work out. A group of four young women in their 20s went to Germany for a year. And they prayed. That was their thing. And they said they didn't really want to pray, and they were tired of praying, and they were. You know, they felt like uh, the one young woman that I know personally, her name is Lenny, and she said it felt like the ceiling was brass. It felt like your prayers just ricocheted. She said, we got so discouraged. It was so hard. They couldn't really work because of visas and all that kind of thing. And they came back really defeated. They didn't come back and get off the plane and high-five each other and just go, all right, we did it. They came back going... We have no clue. We have no clue what happened. The father of the young woman I know, his name is Bob Humberg, um, he went to Germany, and he felt very impressed. He went immediately almost after they returned. And within two weeks, they had the land and the building for the center that would become the CFNI Germany campus uh, in, there in Germany. 
And the building that they renovated was a former SS headquarters where they trained men in Germany uh, in how to torture people. And the CFNI place uh, was a place of worship and praise. And even after they bought the building, you could still see the swastika in the, in the brick because of how it had been imprinted. I mean, they removed it, but it still was there. An incredible evidence of the glory of God and an, an incredible evidence of sometimes we don't see when we pray what happens. And that's not the deal. The deal is we pray. The deal is we pray and trust God that if he's leading us to pray, then he is moving in things that we may not understand. On the day that 9-11 happened in 2001, when the towers came down, um, I was with two young children here in Dallas. Uh, Robert, I think, was about six, and I think uh, I'm having to do higher math here. But anyway, I think Lauren was in the fifth grade. Am I right? Um, she is nodding, so I'm still good. Anyway, kind of scary um, dealing with all of that and just you know, all that was going on, and I, I didn't watch TV with the kids, you know, I didn't want them, I mean, I knew they knew it happened, but I didn't, you know, all those images and all that kind of stuff, and late one night on one of the news, the night it happened, the Dallas police chief was on TV being interviewed, I mean, he was in a, an excerpt on the news, and he said, he said, I'm calling on the people of Dallas to pray, he said, prayer is the most powerful thing you can do, now, he probably had access to a lot of guns, right? And a lot of people with a lot of guns. And he said, I'm calling on you to pray. Incredible in the significance of that. Catherine Marshall is a, a woman who uh, wrote many, many books, and she died a long time ago. She died in 1983. So if you were born in the year she died, you're what, 32? 32? Yes? Y'all stand up here and do the math, okay? Just saying. <laughs> this is one of her books. She was the wife of Peter Marshall, who was chaplain of the United States Senate and, and pastor in a very large uh, Presbyterian church in Washington, D.C. And he died uh, suddenly of a heart attack, and her world pretty much crashed. And she started writing, and her first book was A Man Called Peter that became a movie. And Catherine Marshall wrote a, a lot of books since then. One of the things, here's a picture of her, one of the things that she said about prayer, she said that often um, when, she, when she would fast, God never called her to fast from food or water. He would call her to, to fast from criticism. Now, that's kind of a zinger, you know, and she put that in writing. I mean, she wrote about that in one of her books, and she talked about being in traffic one day, and, and traffic was stacked up, and we've never experienced that on Central or LBJ or whatever is your freeway of choice in Dallas, Texas, but she talked about just fuming that she was in traffic and she was going to be late, and she said God, God clearly spoke to her and said, who is next to you in traffic, and she looked at this guy and um, God said, he desperately needs your prayers. This is why I have you here. And she prayed for him. So I just encourage you, whatever situation you're in, whatever uh, you're facing, wherever you are, even in where you live, that you would truly be praying over the area that you're in, wherever God has placed you, 
I encourage you as you walk or whatever you do around your neighborhood, even driving, that you would pray over your neighborhood from time to time. It doesn't have to be a daily ritual, although it wouldn't be the end of the world if it was. Um, There was a time when the children were quite young, and both of them had more energy than me at any given time in my life. Um, And one in particular was uh, especially gifted with energy. He will remain nameless, but um, (laughs) sorry, but you know. So we're walking, and he's strapped in the stroller for obvious reasons, and we're walking outside. And um, as we're praying, I'm just kind of praying over the neighborhood and that kind of stuff. Now, the house down the street from us is where, at that time, where Bud and Debbie Miller lived. And we had really prayed about that because the house before the Millers moved in, uh, the parents traveled a great deal. They worked for an airline, and they traveled a great deal. And so a 17-year-old and a 10-year-old were left in the house alone most of the time. And people were coming and going all the time, and we didn't think it was about having a Bible study. You know what I mean? I mean, it was just like, and so finally they moved, not saying we prayed them out, but finally they moved. And Bud and Debbie moved in. And of course, then teenagers were still coming and going, but it was your youth, and it was all good. Um, We would pray for the Millers. And I remember very specifically the day that, that we're doing our walk, and one of the kids said, God bless the Millers. And I'd love to say that's a prophetic word, and they were also praying for you too, but we didn't know you then, just, just saying, just kidding. Y'all don't quite get it. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I would just encourage you to pray where you are, that you would pray where you are, that you'd walk the neighborhood. I pray that you would pray about the area around the church and the school. Just pray, pray for God's protection, pray for God to move. There are many places in countries where people are not allowed to share the gospel, where missionaries will go, and what they will mainly do is pray, and they will walk the streets and pray, and they're not allowed to really talk to anybody, but that's what they do, and the deal is, is that we can talk to people, you know, but I think it starts with prayer. I think it has to start with prayer. We started this year in a season of prayer, and I think we have to continue in prayer, and that's not a mandate that's just sort of like, that needs to be a big part of it. That's what the disciples thought was important to do. I think that's something that we need to consider as well. Another thing talks about gathering together, how they would gather together for the apostles' teaching, and that would be like for us gathering in worship. It's really a critical point for us, and I think a lot of times other things kind of override it, and I get that. I get that things are busy. I totally understand that. But I would encourage you to be about gathering together, whether it's in small groups or whether it's in large worship services. You need the encouragement, whether you know it or not. You need the encouragement. You need the teaching. You need to be a part of worship. I think forgiveness has to be a part of everything we do as Christians. Um, Stephen, as he was being stoned, as the rocks were flying, as he was possibly the last thing he said, was asking forgiveness for those that killed him. I don't know where you are on the forgiveness thing. I know that things happen sometimes that we do not anticipate and or things, people's choices, and they are completely wrong. They are completely wrong but we still have to forgive. And it's not fun and it's not easy. There was a time this week that I realized, Friday morning, that I realized um, I needed to forgive. And I'm not saying it was all emotional and wonderful and glorious, 
because it was pretty much through clenched teeth. And I know that sounds real spiritual, but I'm a liar if I stand up here and just say, it was so fun, you know? Uh, sometimes it's incredibly, incredibly hard, right? But as, and I, I knew I needed to forgive because God tells us to. I mean, it kind of comes down to it. My emotion had nothing to do with it. But when I forgave, when the words came out of my mouth, the heaviness that had been over me for days lifted. My brother, my older brother, attends a large um, Bible church here in Dallas, and he talks about how a guy came to speak on forgiveness, and it was just a very simple, a very simple presentation of it. And in that, uh, he said, why don't we meet tomorrow night, and if you want to come and, you, you know, you want to talk about forgiveness or we'll talk more about forgiveness, y'all come. And this is a, a large church and a large auditorium, and Scott said that the next night the place was packed. It was full of people just needing to get rid of their junk. It's like a backpack that's too heavy, and we think it doesn't affect us, but it does. So I can't stay up, stand up here and talk about forgiveness if I'm not doing it too. And so I just encourage you to consider that, if that's something that you're carrying. As uh, one of the ones that goes to the hospitals when people are ill, um, I met Bill Maurer a couple of years ago. Uh, Betty Bruce, who does a lot of visitation for us, checks on people in the hospitals and stuff like that, uh, had called and said that his wife, Pauline, was very ill. She had had Alzheimer's for a number of years, and he had cared for her. And uh, he was pretty much exhausted. <coughs> Excuse me. And so met Bill and, and kind of sat there with him as he was having to talk with the people with hospice and that type of thing. And he said, you know, it's pretty easy to sit in the attorney's office and sign these papers, but when it comes down to signing them for real... Um, releasing the person you love to comfort care. He said, that's, that's really a different thing. <clears throat> and he began telling stories, and they were very active in the church before she got sick, and he was an usher uh, when we were on Pearl Street and all that kind of stuff. And that was during the day of a lot of, lot of teaching on evangelism and that type of thing. And so he kind of started telling stories about that, and he said that, you know, as they heard kind of that emphasis and that kind of stuff, they started thinking about their neighbors. Now, I'll tell you that for the most part, with the exception of the Millers, uh, we've kind of lived by um, psychopaths. Or, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of one of those things that you move in and you go, oh, God. <laughs> you know, they certainly didn't act that way before we signed the, you know, anyway. Um, I mean, alcoholism or, oh, yeah, you know, they call the police on his dad all the time, and you're just going, great, where were you before we signed up? Um, so anyway, with, with all of that, Bill was talking about their neighbor and how they were kind of concerned about their neighbor, so they started being friends with their neighbor and just talking. Now, I don't see Bill as an extrovert. Maybe he is, but he, he seemed like a fairly, I mean, maybe he was a party animal, I don't know. But, you know, he seemed like a pretty quiet guy, and he was talking about his service in the war and all the different things he had done. And he talked about, um, he started talking about this neighbor and how they were concerned and they kind of invited him to a meal and kind of were talking. And he said, he said, we just felt like they needed the Lord and we were praying about it and all that kind of stuff. And he said, finally we decided we had somebody from the church come and talk to him because he said, I didn't quite know what to say, I didn't know what to do, you know, but they had somebody from the church come and talk to him. And he turns and looks at me and Bill is kind of rocking this hat, you know, and he has these big glasses, um, and he looks at me, and Bill's 
pushing 80 easy, if not more than that. He looked at me and he said, I'm quoting, he said, and by God, that man came to Christ. And I was just, I didn't quite know how to, you know, it was like, okay, do I high-five him or do I, what do I do here? Uh, way to go. I mean, but, you know, how cool. And so I called him to get permission to tell that story, you know, and talked to him on the phone just this morning because, yes, I procrastinated all week, but talked to him this morning. And um, he said, well, I have another one for you. And I said, let it rip, Bill. Come on. You know, and so he said, Pauline had these nephews. And he said, man, you know, and and she had a cabin in Canada. You know, it's kind of like we should have staff retreat there, but they've sold it. But anyway, a cabin in Canada, and they would go to Canada, suffering for Jesus. They'd go to Canada, you know, every summer. And so the nephews would go and help clear out the land and all that stuff. And she would always take them to church. And they had to drive a long way because it was, you know, out in the sticks or whatever. And so, and he said we did that, and then we sold the cabin, and we didn't really think any more about it. And he said, when Pauline died, I called the nephew to say, you know, that I was, you know, to let him know about Pauline, because they had a close relationship. And the the man came for her service. He was late because of traffic, but he came for her service, and he um, came to where the funeral was in the casket. I mean, everybody pretty much had left, and he prayed a prayer over with with Bill there, praying for Bill and thanking God for Pauline's work in his life. And he was on staff at a church now and had gone into ministry. And she's, and, and he goes, boy, if you'd asked me back then. <laughs> and he, he said, but you never know what you're planning in people. You never know. So I encourage you in that. I, I know that sometimes, I will tell you, there is a part of me that is a chicken when it comes to talking to people. And I get it, I'm a preacher, and I get it, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I will not do the chicken dance for you so you don't have trauma and I'm not embarrassed, you know. But there's a part of me being introverted that can be pretty chicken. And yet, you know, somebody told me. And I don't know that I would be alive without the gospel. And so I just encourage you, pray for divine appointments. Pray that God would prepare their hearts for people that you might be concerned about. Pray that, you know, just pray that God would prepare them. Pray that you would have the right words as you talk to people. I just encourage you in that. That is not an easy thing for me. I am really trying to do it, and I do it. But I'm just saying, let God prepare that. Let God go ahead of you. When I went to Perkins a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the classes was on Wesley, which was wonderful. And Wesley's just amazing in the things that he did for his generation. And I don't think Wesley, you know, starting out as a young minister, thought, you know, I'm going to change the world. There's going to be a great awakening, and it's going to affect two countries. And more than that, actually. There's going to be such a revival in England that the French Revolution that happened in France and all the bloodshed would not happen in England because of the Great Awakening. I don't think Wesley knew any of that. But he was faithful to what God had called him to do at that point in time, and the Holy Spirit kept moving. And the Holy Spirit kept um, at work when they had small groups, and small groups was their thing. And yet they regularly also met um, in worship services and all of that kind of thing. Wesley commented that the world in his day was incredibly ungodly. That was his word for describing it. England was a mess. I am grateful for where we live. I am grateful to be in the country that I was born in. But there are times that I look at society, and it's pretty much a mess. 
and it's pretty much ungodly. The hope for the world is Christ. The hope for the world is what the disciples did in their day and in their time. The hope for the world is sharing the one we know to be the Savior of the world. In the times of Wesley, not only were there sermons, and it was to thousands and thousands of people, it wasn't like, you know, I mean, it's wonderful to have this group, but I mean, it would be to thousands of people. And yet they said something that was far more effective, they knew, were that the hymns were more effective than even the sermons in reaching people and in touching their hearts. So obviously the the importance of worship in our day. The disciples reached their world by the power of the Holy Spirit and by tremendous effort on their part with tremendous persecution. All of the disciples, all of the apostles that we know of, all except for John, were martyred. There came a time during the reign of certain Caesars that they would use Christians to light their evening parties. They would put them on sticks and set them on fire so they could have light for their parties. Tremendous persecution, and yet the church grew incredibly. Because, see, death is not the end. And torture is really not the end. And there are places in this world that's going on right now as we are able to gather basically in peace and honor him so what do we do as a church what do we do see i feel like we're in the middle of our story and the end of the harvest hasn't come we have this time and it's my belief that we press on whatever road you're on whether life is easy right now or whether it is hard for you we press on to know that what he says is true and the work of the Holy Spirit is available for us all. And it talks several times in Acts about, you know, they were filled with the Spirit again. It wasn't a one-time thing because as you minister and as you live in society and as you work, you will become dry, you will become empty, and we have to be filled again. So wherever you are this day, my prayer for us all as we're kind of in the middle of the story of where we are as First United Methodist Church Carrollton, that we would really be known for honoring God and recognizing the season we're in and doing all we know to do to minister to those that need the hope of Christ. There are so many people that need to know him. There are people just, just in gathering together for ourselves to be encouraged, um, My brother is a pastor at a church where confirmation is a really big deal. And people come for confirmation, but then they don't come any any other time. And they will have over like 100 kids in confirmation, and about 30 of them are active in church. And they never see the others again. I mean, you know, it's just kind of like to be confirmed at at First Coppell. And Tommy commented that night, um, talking to parents... Um, and those of you that love soccer, you need to cover your ears, but, but he said, you know, there will come a time that soccer will cease. I hope that's not blasphemy for my friends that play soccer. But there comes a time that those sort of things don't hold the value. And while we have this time in our children's lives, 
while we have these times as we have children and we're trying to parent and take care of them, or, or as you are older, while you have this time, to be about prayer, to be about the things that he's called us to do, nothing else really counts. If you really think about it, nothing else really counts for eternity. A couple of things in closing. Uh, these are very old books, and I pulled them out of our library, and one is called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, and it's a fairly new uh, book. It was written in the 1600s. Um, and he was a cook in a monastery, and he worked at practicing the presence of God. It's amazing. And I've known about this book. I mean, I know y'all know about it kind of too, but, but just he tried to think about the Lord. He tried to think about the Lord. Another one real quickly is a book on prayer, and it's old too. This guy died in 1970, Frank Laubach, who was a, just a pioneer in the prayer movement in missions and different things. The title of the book is called Prayer, the Mightiest Force in the World, Thoughts for an Atomic Age. Now, that was, this was right when you know, the Cold War and all that kind of stuff was going on. Frank Laubach talked about how he tried to think about God once an hour, that he tried to think about the Lord throughout his day, not just a quiet time at the beginning, but just trying to have thoughts about the Lord. And then he got to the place where he tried to do it every minute, now, I'm kind of like every minute, really, every minute, you know. And I know y'all are very aware that, you know, the clock is ticking right now. But, you know, that was, and he said his testimony was the relationships, the things I had to do, everything just seemed to flow after that. Relationships were fine. Things I had to do just fell into place. Really kind of an amazing testimony. So I don't know where you are this day. I don't know how your week has been. Um, for the record, mine was horrible. I am so glad Doug is back. It has nothing to do with the church, but just my lovely little life right now. Um, I don't know, and I'm not Lynn Val. Um, Lynn served here, and I'm not trying to diss Lynn, but if you ever went to one of his revivals, do y'all remember Lynn? He was an evangelism, he was pastor of evangelism, and if you want to talk about a hard sell, Lynn, you know, Lynn was your guy. He would invite you to these revivals, and the way he would do the altar call is, I mean, he would say, basically, you were denying Jesus if you stayed in your seat. And so the altar would be full, and then you can say the altar was full. You know, well, it's, you're up there going, you know, I didn't want to deny Christ. Um, and that was Lynn. That was kind of his deal. Uh, I'm not trying to say you're denying Christ if you don't come to the altar, because coming to the chancel rail is a very precious thing. But if any of, any of what I have shared has touched you, or you need more of him, or you need to forgive somebody, or you just need prayer, whatever, um, I would just encourage you to do that. You don't have to do it. It's not a matter of salvation. But I just encourage you, wherever you are in this place, um, we're in the middle of our story. And we press on. We press on no matter what it is, no matter what's going on. It's not about our strength. It's about his strength. And we press on.